We invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. We are uh, finalizing our series this morning that we have been in for a number of weeks now entitled There Was Jesus, uh, looking at just incredible encounters uh, that various individuals had with our Lord Jesus Christ and how their lives were transformed through relationship with Christ. Uh, We want to invite you back next week. We're starting a new series as we continue through uh, the New Testament, looking at the the letter of 2 Thessalonians. And so we'll start that next week. So we invite you to join back with us. We did 1 Thessalonians a while back, and uh, we'll continue now with 2 Thessalonians starting next week. So please join us. Be back for that. Uh, We'll look at some great things in God's Word together as we move forward in 2 Thessalonians. But this morning we will look at Acts chapter 16, verse Verses 16 through 34. And so if you have a copy of God's word with you, you can follow along. It's also on the screen for you there in Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 34. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour in the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. As we go to our 
time in the Word this morning, we have been blessed over the last many weeks to hear personal testimonies of individuals that have trusted Christ as Savior. And uh, this morning, we want to hear a testimony from uh, one of our elders, uh, Rick Colelli, and his story of how he came to know Christ as Savior. So please watch this video and be blessed by his story. My name is Rick, and this is my story. I came from a, a, an Italian Catholic family, which was really strong in family. My grandmother had 21 kids, and uh, the way she raised those kids was you know, she was a bootlegger. She had to sell scotch whiskey to take care of all the kids. And uh, so what I learned from my family was that we were really close and that family was everything, that our whole life was built around what all my aunts and uncles and, and my dad and his family did. So I caught that that was really strong and then also being Catholic was very, very strong. I was taught as a young child that we were the, the true church and um, the Protestants were the protesters and they broke away from it. So I learned at an early age that, that this was what life was. I also caught from my family something else that was very important was music. My dad was a musician, my older brothers were musicians, and I had no choice. I knew I was going to have to play music. I just didn't know what instrument. But on a winter's night in February 1964, on the Ed Sullivan Show, the Beatles came on. And the night I saw the Beatles come on, I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to play guitar. And I don't know for sure if it was the next day or a couple days after that night, my dad came home with a guitar, and I started taking guitar lessons. By the time I was in sixth grade, I had my own band and we were playing for like parties in, in, in a friend's house and just anybody would come and listen to us. And so by the time I was in eighth grade, I was playing at fraternity parties and bars and seeing things that an eighth or ninth grader shouldn't see. Now coming from a family that alcohol was always the center of all of our parties, it didn't take long for me with the music I was playing and the people I hung out with, I started to get involved in drinking at a young age. And the next thing I knew, there was marijuana and, and all kinds of drugs. And so by the time I was in eighth and ninth grade, I was getting high every day on the way to school, on the way home from school, at lunchtime with all my friends and with all the band members that I was with. But there was something that was different, though, with me than all my friends. I always felt that what we were doing was wrong. And it's because of um, my mother used to preach at me all the time. And I used to get mad at her, but she'd always share with me that Jesus was watching. There was a, a guitar player when I grew up who was well-known in this area. He's a well-known Christian artist. His name was Phil Keggy, and he was our hero. And every time he played in this area, we made sure we went and listened to him. And so when I was a sophomore in high school, there was this girl who had came back from California and she had gotten saved through the Jesus movement. And she uh, sat next to me in my history class and I was just usually not listening in class or, or high because we got high on the way to school. And she began to share the gospel with me. And I told her her name was Carol. I said, Carol, I know Jesus, I'm Catholic. And she would just say, well, Rick, that's great, but there's more to it than just being Catholic. Well, I didn't understand. So one day she asked me, do you know who Phil Keggy is? And I'm like, yeah. She goes, well, how would you like to meet him? I said, how do you know Phil Keggy? She goes, well, if you come to Coventry High School tonight, she goes, I'll introduce him to you. 
So I, of course, went, my band members went with me, and we got there at night, and as soon as I walked into the gym, she was there, and she said, I'll wait right here, and she ran behind stage, and I could hear her say, he's here. Like, who's here? I didn't know, you know, what she was talking about. So she come and grabbed me and brought me behind stage, and there was Phil sitting down, tuning up his guitar, and he said, hi, Rick, how are you? And I said, how do you know me? He goes, we've been praying for you. And I didn't understand what was going on. So he said, hey, look, at after the concert night, I'd like to talk to you. So he, he played, he shared the gospel, and um, he came down after the playing and sharing the gospel, and he sat down with me. And for the first time in my life, he gave me a Bible, and he asked me if I wanted to get saved. And I had told him that I was Catholic, that I've known Jesus my whole life, and he had shared with me that he was Catholic too. He said, but that's not enough. He said, um, he was talking about a personal relationship with Christ, and there was Jesus. I mean, what's the chances that the hero of your favorite guitar player would be the guy that God would bring into your life? And it's not because I'm telling you the story out of sensationalism, but because Christ saw me where I was, and he came to me, and he used Phil Keggy to lead me to Christ. Well, after that day, um, everything changed. I no longer enjoyed getting high. I no longer wanted to do the things that was going on. I was under huge conviction. And it was a, a few years after that that I met a guy at where I worked at. He had a Bible study. I started going to the Bible study, and I started really growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's where I met my wife. And from there, um, Christ changed my life. And out of Isaiah chapter 61, the Bible says that Jesus came um, for the brokenhearted. He came for those that was mourning. And he ends up giving beauty for ashes. And that's what Jesus did for me. He took the ashes of my life, my burned out life, and he turned it into beauty. And he saved me through the blood of Jesus Christ and the cross. Isn't it great to know that we serve a God who is in the business of changing lives. We have seen it all throughout this series. There was Jesus. And each time he's there and he offers salvation to those who will put their faith and trust in him. And even as we've studied the biblical stories, we've shared with you modern stories, stories of people from our own church that God has changed their lives because there was Jesus and they put their faith and trust in him. This morning we're going to look at another one of those stories in Acts chapter 16. So hopefully you still have your Bibles or electronic devices opened there and we're going to see how Jesus makes a difference in several people's lives. So as we come to this passage... Uh, we need to understand the context so that we can fully appreciate the story that we're going to zero in on. And the first thing that I want you to see is going back into verse 7, where the Apostle Paul and those who were traveling with him attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Now think of that for a moment. Paul has a plan to go into a region to share Jesus with the people in that region, 
but the Spirit of Jesus did not let him go there. Now, I often wonder how the Spirit of Jesus did that. You know, did the, the Spirit of Jesus, you know, did they meet with armed forces that wouldn't let them go through? And that was clear. Jesus didn't want them to go there. Did their travel plans fall apart so that they couldn't get there? Uh, did Jesus appear to Paul in a vision or a dream? I don't know how it was that God worked, but God had other plans for Jesus. And, you know, that's just a lesson to all of us. We have our plans. We have the things we are planning to do, but there are times that Jesus changes our plans. Has he ever done that for you? You know, redirected you? It's because he is sovereign, and he is in control, and he knows what he wants to see happen and how he's going to bring it to happen. So the next thing that Paul experiences is he has a vision in verse 9. It says, a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So God communicates clearly to Paul through a vision. And what does Paul do? He immediately heads in to Macedonia. Well, we find in verse 12 that Paul goes into the city of Philippi. And down in verse 14, he's going to a place of prayer, and he meets there a woman by the name of Lydia, who was from the city of Thyatira, but she happens to be in the city of Philippi now. And she was a seller of, of purple, and she was a worshiper of God. And then notice what it says for us at the end of verse 14. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well. That's a salvation experience of Lydia. The Lord did what? He opened her heart. It's always interesting to me as I read through the scriptures of the different descriptions of how people come to know Jesus as Savior. And in this case, it's just the Lord opened her heart. We know the reality is that anyone that becomes a believer in Jesus, it's because the Lord opens their heart. There's none that seeks after God. No, not one. And regardless of the story, regardless of the circumstances, if the Lord is not at work, nothing's going to happen of eternal value. But if God is at work, if God is at work, there are going to be changed lives. And Lydia's life is changed. So with that as a background, we now move into our passage uh, before us, and I've kind of broken it up into three scenes. We're going to see scene one here, the exorcism, the exorcism. Verse 16, as we were going to the place of prayer, that would indicate to us that in the city of Philippi, there was not a Jewish synagogue 
Remember Paul's method. Whenever he goes into the town, he goes to the Jew first and then to the Gentiles. Why to the Jew first? Because they would be the ones that would have the background of the Old Testament scriptures. They would be the ones prepared most to receive the message. In order for there to be a synagogue in a city, there needed to be at least 10 Jewish men who were following after God. When there weren't 10 Jewish men, they would just have a place of prayer. And we don't know whether it was all women at this place of prayer or whether it was a mixture of women and men, but Paul is going and he is going to the place of prayer. And as he's going, we're told in verse 16, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Now what does that mean? that she had a spirit of divination. It means she was demon-possessed. The literal Greek words here for a spirit of divination means that she was, had a spirit of a python. Now, that had relevance in Greek mythology. The python was the monstrous, constricting snake that was said to have killed the god Apollo. So thus, the python became the symbol of the Greek god Apollo. And the masters, the owners of this girl, claimed that she had abilities to tell fortunes. And these fortunes came from that python spirit that was within her. So she's demon-possessed. And notice, she brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She would tell fortunes, and those who owned her, her masters, were making a lot of money. Hang on to that, because that's an important fact to her owners. She is, for them, the source of their profit. And that to them is very, very important. Well, you would say, well, how can she tell fortunes? Well, let's keep in mind that demons, who I believe to be the fallen angels, are very powerful and wise spirits. So therefore, they are things, they've been around a lot longer than we have been. Uh, they will know things that we do not know. And so they can predict certain things. Not always with 100% accuracy, but they can tell the future. And by telling the future, these masters are making a lot of money. So verse 17 tells us, she followed Paul and us. Now, the us here is we're seeing the group together is Paul, Timothy, Silas, and Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. As you go through the book of Acts, whenever you see the words we and us, it means that Luke was a part of that group. So Luke is there. This is a firsthand account coming from Luke. And as she followed Paul and us, she cries out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now, 
There's a difference as commentators look at what it was she was saying. In the Greek, the definite article for the way of salvation is not there. So some believe that what this slave girl is crying out is they proclaim to you a way of salvation. Not the one and only way of salvation, but they are proclaiming to you a way to be saved. And by following Paul and the group, and by crying this out, she's connecting herself with this group and would lead others to think that her messages and their messages are exactly the same. Others say, no, 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 what she's saying is exactly true, that they are proclaiming the way of salvation, the one and only way of salvation. We know there's only one way of salvation. Jesus made that very clear. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So we, I can't be sure exactly. I lean toward that she was saying these men proclaim a way of salvation, not the way of salvation. But we see in the passage, verse 18, and she kept doing this for many days. Over and over again. Paul and his command, uh, his companions are going to the place of prayer, and every day she's there, and she's crying out. And probably in a voice that would get your attention of the demon speaking through her. Because it's not really her crying out. It is the demon that is within her who has taken over her voice and is speaking in another voice and is crying this out day after day after day. And then we're told, Luke tells us about Paul, and he says, Paul, having become greatly annoyed. I find it interesting that Luke doesn't say, we became greatly annoyed. She said, he said, Paul became greatly annoyed. Have you ever been annoyed by something? Are there certain people that annoy you and tend to pick, 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 pick just for the sake of of annoying you? Are there things that have happened that annoy you? I remember one 4th of July weekend years ago. Barb and I lived over in Kenmore, and the 4th of July was on a Saturday. And so I had gone to bed around 10.30, 11 o'clock, And one of my neighbors decided he was going to shoot off firecrackers all through the night. 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight, 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock. And I was becoming greatly annoyed. I was so annoyed that I came up with a plan. Now, I have to get some sleep because I have to get up the next morning and preach. So I'm going to come up with a very godly response. (laughs) I'm going to look up his phone number 
and at 6 a.m. in the morning, I'm going to call him, and I'm going to say, how do you like getting up early in the morning? I was greatly annoyed. Now, I'm going to confess to you, I didn't do that. I couldn't bring myself to do that knowing I had to go to church and preach that morning. (laughs) But I was annoyed. Paul is annoyed. And Paul determines to do something about it. He turns and he says to her in verse 18, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Paul speaks directly to the demon and says, I command you to come out. This will not be the one and only time that Paul casts out demons. Later on in Acts chapter 19 and verse 15, there will be some Jewish exorcists who see how easily Paul casts, how easily they think Paul casts out demons by just commanding them, and he, they will try to do the same thing, and they will say to them, we command you in the name of Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out of him. And the demons will answer, well, Paul we know. And Jesus we know, but who are you? And the man will get up and beat up seven of the sons of Sceva, and they'll go running out of the room. But Paul, in the power of Jesus, says to this evil spirit, come out of her. And it comes out that very hour. Immediately. God changes the life of this slave girl. Now, there's nothing in the passage that says to us that she believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, the scriptures don't tell us the whole story. They reveal to us what God wants us to know. But I can't believe that Paul would have left this girl in a state of unbelief after casting out the demon. And I believe that she came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and her life was changed. Well, now we move in the passage to scene two, the persecution. When, verse 19, when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, when they see she, they can't make any more money off of her, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. Notice they attack them racially. These men are Jews. It's not just these men are disturbing our city. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. Friends, throughout our world, racism raises its ugly head again and again and again. But I want you to know, God has made all people of the same family of the earth. And there is no room among God's people 
for there to be racism and for us to take racist attitudes against it doesn't matter what the other race is. We were all created in the image of God. We have all been made of one blood. Here we see the ugly head of racism raise its head. As they say, these men are Jews. And they are disturbing our city. Disturbing the city? I don't see anything that says they've disturbed the city, do you, in the passage? What have they done? They've disturbed our way of making money. That's what they're upset about. And when they brought them to these magistrates, they say, verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. See, Philippi was a special city in that was a Roman colony. You'll see that back in verse 12 where it says, from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia, and a Roman colony. You would say, why is that important? Because when a city had the status of a Roman colony, it was as if they were right in Rome. The laws of Rome came into play in that city. Now, don't forget, we're going to see at the end of the message that Paul is a Roman citizen. So they are now claiming that what Paul and Silas and his companions are doing goes against the law of the Romans. In verse 22, the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Not only are they put in jail, but they're also put in stocks. And the Roman stocks were such that they would spread out the prisoner's feet as wide as they could, and they would put his hands and, and sometimes the head in stocks. So it was a very painful position to be put in, and especially after they had been beaten with rods. And they put them in the very center of the prison, the place where they can be kept the safest, and there's no way for them to escape. But the next thing I want us to see in scene three is the household salvation that occurs. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. That's convicting to me. I asked myself, if this had happened to me, what would I be saying about midnight? Would I be praying? Would I be singing hymns to God? If I were singing, it would probably be the song, Nobody's Seen the Trouble I've Been Seen. But Paul and Silas are singing to God. They are praising God. 
in spite of their circumstances. They are praying. And we're told the prisoners were listening to them. This is probably not the language they typically heard in prison. They are listening to them as they sing to their God and as they pray. And suddenly there was a great earthquake. So that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Now think of that. An earthquake, and this is just no ordinary earthquake. The, the prison is shaken, the doors are opened, the bonds that are fastening everyone are loosened. You know, Paul and Silas no longer are in these stocks. Every chain has been broken. And when the jailer woke, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. So when the the jailer awakes, and typically the jailer lived at the prison, he would have his house and it would be connected to the prison. Oftentimes the prisons would be in a basement type uh, place of the jailer's home. And so he wakes up, sees the doors open, and he draws his sword, and he's going to kill himself. And the reason he's going to kill himself is by Roman law and custom, if you were a jailer and the prisoner got away, you had to endure whatever the sentence was for the escaped prisoner. And so there are obviously other prisoners there besides Paul and Silas, and he's sizing this all up, and he's thinking there's no way out for him. He's desperate, and the only way that he sees out is by taking his own life. But friends, hear me this morning. There's always a way out. You may be here this morning, and you may be contemplating suicide. You may look at your circumstances, and you may say, there's nothing good that can come from this. The best way for me, is to take my life. That's the voice of the devil whispering in your ear. The one who comes to kill and destroy. Friends, there is always a way out. Quit focusing on your circumstances and start focusing on the God who can change your circumstances. He's ready to kill himself. And Paul cried out, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. Now, some have said this is a bigger miracle than the earthquake, that the doors of the jail are open, their cells are open, all their bonds are off, and nobody's left the jail. Think about that for a moment. Dennis, you work in the jails. Is that what you would expect? (laughs) But that's what happens there. They're all still there. Whether Paul's told them to remain or not, I don't know. But I know they're all still there. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. And he's trembling with fear. And he fell down before Paul and Silas. I think he's calling for light so he can look around and see if what Paul told him was true. Are they really still all here? 
Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? It's the most important question you can ask today. If you've never asked that question, the most important question for you in your life is this question. What must I do to be saved? Because we all need a Savior. We are all lost in sin. We are all doomed. And not only to an earthly death, but to an eternal death without Jesus. What must I do to be saved? And they said, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved and your household. Now, that has been greatly debated. What's it mean, and your household? Does it mean if one person in the household gets saved, that everybody is automatically saved? No. It means that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord in that household will be saved. The gospel is for all who will believe. We saw it in the case of Lydia. It talks about her household was saved. Here it's talking to the Philippian jailer. Believe, and you will be saved. And if your household believes, they will be saved. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. If you're a believer in Jesus, you need to be baptized. Notice the immediate obedience here. He believed and he was baptized. If you know Jesus as your Savior, what's keeping you from being baptized? The proof of the jailer's salvation is he's willing to be obedient to the Lord. And he's making a public profession of faith in Christ by being baptized. That's what baptism is. Baptism doesn't save, but it's a message that we have been saved. And then he will set food before Paul and Silas. And he, we're told at the end of verse 34, rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. So how do we wrap this series up? Quickly. First of all, most importantly, Jesus changes lives. Has your life been changed? Have you put your faith and trust in him? If not, come to him. No matter what your circumstances are, come to Jesus. He desires to save you. He is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Put your faith and trust in Jesus. Dear Christian friends, those of us that know Jesus, as we've seen over and over again throughout this series, Jesus will lead us and provide opportunities for us that we can tell others about him. Let's seize those opportunities. We're not lacking opportunities. The opportunities are there. We need the boldness to seize those opportunities and to share with those who have not been saved how they can be saved by Jesus. I am so thankful that we serve a God who changes lives. I am thankful he's changed my life. And I'm thankful that as I look out over this congregation this morning, I see people whose lives 
have been changed through the power of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. And Father, I pray that we will faithfully proclaim it throughout our lives. Father, we pray for those who may be here this morning who do not know Jesus. May they put their faith and trust in him. Will you draw them to yourself? Open their hearts. Help them to believe. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.